This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Julie Gould, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. Welcome to the fifth and penultimate episode of our series on funding. In the previous episode, we looked at a recent major upheaval in the UK science funding environment with the creation of UK research and innovation. This time, we're looking at some of the processes that determine how funding decisions are and have been made in the past and what impact that these decisions can have on careers in scientific research. But before we go on, don't forget that at the end of this Working Scientist podcast, we've got a 10-minute sponsored slot from the ERC. Right, so funding. How do governments decide where to put their money? Professor Michael Teitelbaum, a demographer at the Labour and Worklife Programme at Harvard Law School, has studied how the funding has been allocated in the US since the World Wars. And he's found that funding comes in cycles, and he calls them alarm, boom, bust cycles. And I asked Michael to give us a quick, simple introduction into what these cycles Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Government funding for basic research often runs in cycles. Politicians and governments decide that there needs to be more funding for basic research, and they often will raise the funding quite rapidly to show a significant effect, but then are unable to sustain that rate of increase. Sometimes the funding even declines subsequently. So you get a cycle of boom followed by bust over a period of perhaps a decade. My conclusion is that this is quite unhealthy for basic research, which is a long-term quintessentially long-term kind of activity involving long study periods to become fully professional, followed by long careers in basic research. If the funding increases sharply and then doesn't continue to increase or declines, that is very destabilizing for both basic research itself 
and for career prospects in basic research. And why do you think the governments react in such a way by actually putting quite considerable sums of money towards whatever basic research they're aiming to, to fund? It's not universal, but it's common that governments are convinced by industry or by academic institutions that they have been funding basic research insufficiently, and they tend to over-respond to that kind of representation by increasing funding at levels that cannot be sustained over the longer term. Why would you say that these cycles destructive towards the careers of researchers? Well, the problem is that basic research and basic and careers in basic research are fundamentally long-term propositions. And this kind of funding, which is for a period of years and then disappears, is destabilizing to a system that requires many years of graduate and advanced study and research to become a professional in basic research. And research projects that take many years to develop, uh, you can't really achieve a great deal in basic research in only a few years. And if you study uh, for eight to 10 years or more to become a research scientist, you might find yourself with these short cycles of funding, you might find yourself uh, finishing your studies just in time to face a very poor career situation in those fields. In his book called Falling Behind, Boom, Bust and the Global Race for Scientific Talent, Michael explored some of these alarm boom-bust cycles in the US from the past century. Now, one of the examples he uses in the book is the shock of the successful 1957 Soviet Union launch of the first satellite, Sputnik 1. This led to what I would consider to be a um, near political panic among leaders of the U.S. government, especially uh, people such as uh, Lyndon Johnson, who was then majority leader in the U.S. Senate, and led to an enormous increase in funding for space and rocketry and uh, controls for um, catching up with the Soviet Union in, um, in space. That cycle ended with the success of John Kennedy's um, promise to um, successfully land humans on the moon and return them to Earth safely by the end of the 1960s. When that was that spectacular achievement was achieved, the political system tended to lose interest in the massive funding for the space program, and there was a bust. The third cycle, 1980s, was um, stimulated by then-President Reagan's so-called uh, strategic defense initiative, critics called it the Star Wars initiative, which led to massive funding, but only short term for that initiative. And then the final two cycles that I identify in the book were different in the sense that they weren't military, they weren't strategic in that sense. The first was the internet, the boom resulting from the internet becoming a commercial activity rather than a research or um, academic activity. 
and the expansion, therefore, of the Internet and uh, other kinds of booms in the 1990s. Again, that was in the private sector, not in the government sector. And finally, overlapping that was a decision by the U.S. Congress and the presidential leadership of both parties to double funding over a five-year period for the National Institutes of Health, a massive increase for five years, averaging about 14% per year, that then was followed by flat funding for subsequent years. So what, what cycle are we in at the moment? One of the characteristics of a cycle like this is you don't know it's a cycle until it finishes. So we can't be sure at this point that we're in an alarm boom bust cycle. We could just be in an alarm and boom cycle without a bust to follow. We will have to come back and talk in five years to see if there is a bust that ensues at the end. But the current boom situation is in information technology, in social media, in fields that are largely created by industry, and particularly by firms in Silicon Valley and in the Seattle area, led by Intel and Microsoft in particular, in terms of their lobbying, they, they argue they cannot find the skilled personnel they need to remain uh, competitive internationally, that there is a shortage of skilled personnel in these fields. It's not a new claim. It's been a claim that was common in all of these other booms and busts over the previous half century. But their goal is not to encourage a funding boom from the federal government for their fields because they are in the commercial sector and they are profit-seeking firms. What they're looking for, and they've, successfully, they've been successful in their lobbying efforts, is large-scale access to temporary workers coming from low-wage countries, uh, largely via visas with odd names like H-1B and L-1 and so on, they've been quite successful in getting these short-term temporary workers, large numbers of them, in the hundreds of thousands, claiming that otherwise they would not be able to uh, continue to be competitive internationally. And then there's also parallel lobbying from higher education groups. Their goals are indeed to increase research grant funding uh, because it's a very substantial source of revenue for them, but also to have continue to have easy access to large number of numbers of international graduate students who pay full tuition. How can early career researchers keep track of these cycles and, and see and feel what's happening and, and learn to navigate them? I think the... Um, the key words would be pay attention and be flexible. If you're an early career researcher or aspiring to be a researcher in one of these fields, you need to keep track of what we are discussing here in terms of increased funding from government sources or decreased funding, increased numbers of uh, temporary visas or decreased numbers of temporary visas. All of these things will have some impact over time on your personal experience. 
So you need to pay attention, for example, to the trajectories of key uh, science funding agencies. I would say um, a way to do that is to pay attention to reports from credible publications. Do report in an objective way on what is happening in the politics, if you will, of funding and of temporary visas. You would have to pay attention to the budget requests of key agencies and assess whether those requests are likely, if they are responded to positively, are they likely to be sustainable over the longer term or are they likely to be short-term pulses of funding which would be destabilizing. And then in those who are already doing research and are funded by government agencies need to be cautious in responding to requests for proposals that seem to be short-term pulses of funding or boom-type funding. They need to build a portfolio, I would say, of different funding sources rather than depend on a particular source that seems to be flush with money at the moment but may not be in the future. In other words, the same kind of advice that any investment advisor would give to a client that they should diversify their commitments and thereby reduce their exposure to risk in the future. Speaking of the future, the impact that political systems have on scientific funding and thinking back on the previous episode with James Wilson on the UK scientific funding environment, I asked Michael what he thought might happen, or not, with Brexit, or not. If that were to happen, I know there's a great deal of concern in the UK among academic institutions in terms of whether they would be able to apply for what has become quite a large amount of basic research funding from the European Union. I think that's all up in the air now, so I don't think we can make any forecasts or projections about what will happen, but it's it's an issue that I think should be watched. If I were a young scientist engaged in pursuing a career in basic research in the UK, I would be paying a lot of attention to this. Okay, well, let's chat again in five years' time. And, uh... <laughs> I don't think we need five years for that one. That's probably <laughs> two years, but it's not now. We can't do it now. So what does this all mean? Well, the long and short of it is we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But what I think we can say is that the funding environment at the moment is a difficult one to navigate. So the more skills and tools amassed for writing grant proposals will be vital for survival in the scientific workforce. In the final episode of this series, we'll hear more about some alternative ways of distributing scientific funding that may alleviate some of the pressures that researchers face in the current very competitive climate. Now that's all for this section of our Working Scientist podcast. We now have a slot sponsored by and featuring the work of the European Research Council. Joachim Alves Gaspar tells of his work in cartography and with the European Research Council project Media Chart. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. Uh, my name 
chemist Joaquim Alves Gaspar. I was born in Lisbon, Portugal, 69 years ago. I joined the Portuguese Navy when I was 19, and I served for about 40 years. In 2006, that is 12 years ago, I started a PhD program on the geometric analysis and numerical modeling of old nautical charts, which I completed in 2010. In my thesis, I have proposed and tested a series of cartomatic methods, that means geometrical methods of analysis and numerical modeling, aimed at better understanding how old charts were constructed and used at sea. As soon as I got the degree, I was invited to become a member of a research center in the Faculty of Sciences, University of Lisbon, where I am now and where, where I am, I've been working for eight years. First, as a postdoctoral researcher, and now, after winning the grant, as uh, a principal investigator. Most of what I know about the technical and the scientific matters related to the Easter and nautical cartography, I learned it from the Navy. I am not only referring to the theoretical background which people can study from the books, but also to the actual experience of conducting a ship at sea and using nautical charts for the planning and the execution of navigation. It was this knowledge and this experience that gave me the capacity uh, to fully understand the old charts, not only as historical artifacts or images of the world, which is a traditional approach, but also or mostly as instruments to navigate. This is something the traditional historian of cartography is not prepared to do. By looking into those charts with the eyes of a cartographer and of a navigator and with the assistance of the analytical and modeling tools that I have developed, I could establish a meaningful connection between the methods of chart construction in the old times, of course, as described in the history, historical sources and the practice of navigation. This development has opened new and promising lines of research. That is what my ERC project is about. I applied to and I won a starting grant in the section S6, that is the history of the human past. It was at that time the first ever Portuguese proposal to be accepted in that particular section. This was the first ever grant that was conceded to, to a project on the history of cartography. And also, as far as I know, no one is using this kind of techniques to study old maps. The total amount of the grant is about 1.2 million euros to be applied during five years. This funding will be mostly used to pay the six grantees we are now working with us to cover travel expenses and to buy some equipment. We have a team of eight members, the PI, I, myself, a retired Navy officer, a senior researcher uh, who is a physicist who converted to the history of science and is now the head of the Department of History and Philosophy of Science, 
a postdoctoral researcher uh, who is also a physicist by education, three PhD students, a junior computer expert who is developed developing our information system and the project manager and she is a neuroscientist by education. Of this, only one of the PhD students is an historian by education. This tells something about uh, what I have called the multidisciplinary uh, nature of my project. The general objective of the project, as stated in my proposal, is to solve a series of questions which have, or should I say, eluded the historians of cartography for a very long time, pertaining to the birth, the technical evolution, and the use of nautical charts during the Middle Ages and also the early modern period. For example, we want to clarify when, how, why and where the first nautical charts were constructed. This is a very popular subject among the international community of historians of cartography. Not only we have been very successful in bringing many of them to the discussion, but also significant progress has been made in the last years. For example, it is now consensual among, consensual among us that the oldest nautical charts were constructed using navigational information collected by the pilots at sea. Or that some distortions affecting the old charts were caused by the use of magnetic compasses to navigate, which, uh, as you know, don't point exactly to the geographical north. The difference is the so-called uh, declination, magnetic declination. The novelty in my project is that we intend to provide good answers to those questions by using uh, what we call a multidisciplinary approach, including innovative techniques of geometrical analysis, uh, numerical modeling, uh, carbon-14 dating, and multispectral analysis of the old parchments, which will complement, of course, the traditional methods of historical research. So far, one and a half year after the project started, the results are promising. Aim the highest possible. And don't just give a try. Do it using everything you got. Okay, don't be humble. ERC grants are intended to be given to the very best researchers proposing the best projects. If you are confident that you have an excellent idea, one that will make the panel members to race out of their chairs, and that you are the right person to make it work, then don't be shy. Go for it. However, having made the decision of proceeding to the next stage, you will now need a great deal of humbleness to be able to create the best possible proposal. The reason is that you will have to engage into an extremely competitive process with highly competent and motivated people. In other words, you will have to work hard and to be perfectionist. It took me a full year to write the proposal despite my experience and background. 
Let me elaborate a bit on this. You know you have a wonderful idea, otherwise you wouldn't have engaged in the process. The job now will be to organize such idea into a meaningful and a feasible project. And of course, to convince the evaluation panel that you are the best possible person to make it work. Don't leave anything to fortune, to chance, so that you won't blame yourself for not taking it out all the variables. That's all <laughs> I have to advise. One of the unwritten uh, goals of the project is to, is to pass the message, to pass my matches. I want to live forever, and I, want, and I want my methods and my techniques to be passed and to be used again by other people. And Portugal uh, is the best place because I also want to give a push to the research on the subject in Portugal. 